0: Have you ever heard a news story and immediately thought, I wish I didn't know that? Seems pretty common with our headlines today. Or maybe you see a video, someone sends you a link, and immediately afterwards you wish, you know, I wish I hadn't seen that. Or maybe you hear a conversation about somebody, and as you leave that conversation, you think, I wish I hadn't heard that. I wish I didn't know that about this person. Oftentimes, we have those feelings because what we see and what we hear and what we receive is dark. It's heavy. And you wish you could go back 30 seconds to five minutes earlier and go, I I wish I just didn't know that. I wish I didn't live in a world where that existed. When I think about Genesis 34, it's exactly what I think. It's a really dark passage. If you read some of the storybook Bibles, some of the children's Bibles, this is one of those that gets edited out. It's one of those that doesn't make the cut. It's, the reason is it's, it's difficult to read. On the surface, it tells the true story of a young girl getting raped and kidnapped. It tells of a father's passive indifference. And if that weren't enough, there's an equally horrifying ending where two brothers take vengeance into their own hands... In the form of mass murder. So we think mass murder, shootings, killing sprees like that, it's just something, a new phenomenon. That, that's been going on for a long time. It's injustice on top of injustice on top of injustice. And it begs the question, God, why is this in the Bible? I mean, you could literally take this story out and nothing changes in the storyline. And that's why we started this morning with 2 Timothy 3.16, because all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training for righteousness. And it begs the question, God, why is this passage in the Bible? And how could this passage in any way be profitable for us? Maybe, like me As you looked at this passage coming into the week, or maybe for the first time hearing Becca read, you thought, why is this passage in the Bible? And mind you, this isn't a story about outsiders. You know, where the writer of Genesis says, Meanwhile, all these godless people, look what they're doing. This is happening in the people who have the promises of God. This is the very family God is using to bring about the redemption of the world. And not only are they front and center in the story, they're just as guilty as the pagans in it. Andrew Peterson has a song called The Dark Before the Dawn. And it's a song that puts lyrics to the darkness we see in the world. I've got a couple of those lyrics up where he says, This is the storm before the calm. It's the pain before the bomb. It's the cold before the warm. The tears before the song, the dark before the dawn. And that's what Genesis 34 is. It's the dark before the dawn. It's not a passage that ends with a happy note. It ends in darkness. So let me tell you where we're headed this morning. We're going to walk through the story. There's going to be three main movements in this story. The first in verses 1 to 4, we'll see the defilement. We'll see what happens to Dinah. And then in verses 5 to 24, we'll see the deception. We'll see this plot unfold. And then finally in verses 25 to 31, we'll see the destruction. So we'll see defilement, deception, and destruction. And that forms the basic structure of the narrative. And then at the very end, we'll draw out some implications and some applications for us to consider as we leave. So let's start together in verse 1 to see the defilement. Here again, God's word. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, if you remember a few chapters ago, if you were with us, we get some context for this passage. If you remember this family we've been looking at, we learned Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And we're told that Jacob loved Rachel, but he had little regard for Leah. And despite the fact that Leah had borne Jacob six. Sons and a daughter named Dinah. He never gave her much attention. He never gave her the affection that she deserved as his wife. And now in this part of the story, they're headed back. Uh, they're making their way to the promised land. They've been in um, the, uh, Padan Aram uh, for 20 years. And now they're headed back. God had come to Jacob and told them it was time to go back to the promised land. And the Bible tells us that they... Uh, stop along the way and they spend some time in the city of Shechem. Now Shechem, just like the rest of the promised land, is filled with Canaanites. It's full of people who are uh, uh, far from the promises of God. They don't worship Yahweh, the one true God. They have this reputation for being barbaric and violent. And it's not one of those reputations in name. They really are a violent people. Now given the timeline of Dinah's birth and their 20 years in Padamaran, this would have put Dinah at around 14 or 15. So she's a teenager at this point. And the Bible tells us that she went out to see the women of the land. It would have been common knowledge at this time that it's not a good idea for a woman to go out alone into the city. That would have been a very dangerous venture. They're, they're vulnerable. They don't have uh, uh, the kind of system of laws and protection um, like, like we do. It would have been an uncommon thing for a woman to go out alone at this time. So we might ask, why did she do it? Was she just curious and wanted to see what these people were like? Had she made some friends in her time there? The reality is we don't really know why she's going out into the city alone. But what we do know is, is that as she goes out into the city, she's leaving a place of safety among her family and her clan. And she's headed into a dangerous place Alone, Verse 2, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now we're introduced to Shechem. He's the son of Hamor. Hamor is the local ruler which makes Shechem the prince of the land. He's even named after the city. And we can understand that he's wealthy, he's powerful, and entitled And then in a quick succession of verbs, we find out that Shechem saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, and humiliated her. The way it's written in Hebrew, these verbs come one after another. It's meant to convey um, the speed at which this happened. It's a brutal act of sexual violence. And this trifold use of verbs... If you're paying attention in the narrative, if you've been with us, it should remind you of Genesis 3, when Eve saw and took and ate. We see these verbs come up again in Genesis 6. You see them again in, in Genesis 6, uh, 16. It's to show the, 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 the first sin keeps repeating, of seeing something and desiring it, and not wanting to go about the, the right way, but through, through sinful desires, saying, I see it. I want it, it's mine, and I don't care what I have to do or who I have to go through to get it. It's the pathway of sin to see something, to take it, and to devour it. That's what we see going on here with Dinah. There's no pausing of Shechem to consider the morality of his action. It's just ready, fire, aim. It's seeing something that you desire and doing whatever it takes to make it yours. He saw her, he seized her, and he lay with her. With the result being, he humiliated her. Friends, this is nothing short of rape. And it's brutal. It's absolutely, unequivocally, and categorically wrong. It's evil in the most proper use of the term. Verse 3 says, And his soul, speaking of Shechem, was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this girl for my wife. So Shechem, after raping her, adds insult to injury by speaking tenderly to her and telling her that he loves her. You can just imagine the manipulation here. It's further abuse. It's evil. He confuses his lust and sexual desires for love. His attraction to her is physical and selfish. It's not relational. It's not the self-giving kind of love. He really has no concern for her well-being. And then what's more, as he goes to his father, remember his father's in charge of all this area... He's saying, like, Dad, I need you to clean up this mess for me. He's used to getting his way. And he demands that, this, that his father use his position and power to make this girl his wife. So as we come into the end of these first four verses, very quickly we see this daughter of Leah and Jacob, Dinah, has been raped and humiliated and defiled. Now let's look at verse 5 to see Deception. Verse 5, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now as a father, personally with a daughter, at this moment in the story, I am completely unable to understand Jacob. There is no way I could have remained silent. No way I could keep my peace. This is the same Jacob. Remember, who pulled the long con and his father to steal the blessing. This is the same Jacob who took initiative at the well to strike up a conversation with the guys there to roll away this rather large stone at the well. This is the Jacob who's the man of action and yet he's sitting back, remaining passive. This is the same Jacob when we see later on in the story at mention that his favorite son Joseph has been harmed, immediately gets up shows a ton of emotion, shows a ton of passion when when his beloved son is presumed dead. But here for Dinah, he remains silent. He's apathetic. You can see his disregard for Leah has extended to her daughter Dinah. Now some might try to come to Jacob's defense and say, listen, doesn't wisdom hold back Doesn't wisdom um, think about the right course of action, come up with a good um, game plan? And that might be the case if the rest of this story showed some sense of action. We might be able to go there and say, okay, he's, he's figuring out the best way to go about it. But we've heard the story already read and we know he remains inactive and passive the whole time. This is a low point even for Jacob. Here his silence is deafening. This is a failure of leadership. It's a failure of what it means to be a father. And honestly, I think it's a failure of just basic human decency to know and to see what's happened to his daughter and not be moved. We'll find out later on in the story. She's not even returned home. She's still being held hostage and kidnapped in the city of Shechem. And he does nothing. He's not moved for his daughter at all. Verse 6 And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant, very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So you can imagine, Shechem has told Hamor, Get this daughter. Uh, This woman to be my wife, Hamor, the father probably used to cleaning up his son's messes, goes and meets Jacob to negotiate. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons hear what's happened in the field and they're, they're caught up to speed on what's happened to their sister and they come running back in. And their initial response is actually spot on. They're responding exactly the way they should. They're indignant. They're very angry. In fact, we might even call this a righteous kind of anger. It's provoked at what God calls evil, and there's a demand for justice. So when we see evil and wrong things happening in the world, the Bible creates a category for us called righteous anger. Now, it's not righteous to get mad um, at things that, you, that, that are trying to build your kingdom. But the things that God calls evil, the things that God would look at and say, these are atrocities. And when you feel that, 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 that urge for justice, when you go, this ought not to be done. That initial impulse is a righteous anger. It's the right response. Now we often then take it further and it devolves from righteous anger into unrighteous anger. But that initial provocation. That initial declaring, this ought not to be done, is a righteous anger. Verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. So now the negotiations have begun. And Hamor basically says, guys, I get it. I can see you're angry. But where you see a problem, I see an opportunity. Let's not miss." What could happen here? There's so much potential. I mean, you guys are new to the area. Why not stay here? Set up here. And we could really become one people. My son wants to marry your daughter. That could be a pattern for our two peoples. We'll give you our daughters in marriage. You give us your daughters in marriage. We could be one people. This could be your home. Set up businesses. Set up homes. And did you notice what he was talking about? He basically said, look, I'll give you land. I'll give you security, prosperity, peoplehood with an identity. And aren't these the very things that God has promised to give Jacob and his family? And I hope you're noticing as we've made our way throughout Genesis. In almost every single conflict, there's someone who comes along who says, I can give you what God has promised you. I can give it to you now, not according to God's timeline, but according to mine. And there's an offer on the table to have the fulfillment of the promises of God apart from God. Did you notice what he didn't say? As Hamor and Shechem were talking, was there any hint of remorse? Any hint of repentance? Any admission of wrongdoing or guilt? For them, this is simply a business and political negotiation. So verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, look, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we will be gone. You notice who's still silent? Jacob. You know who's had to step in? The sons. In fact, they say we'll take our daughter. You notice they're essentially playing the role as the father and Jacob is silent. The sons of Jacob have taken over the negotiations and they've taken matters into their own hands. Now, for good readers, we know that a plot is underway because the narrator, Moses, tells us that they answered deceitfully. So they had no intention of actually becoming one people with these people. They respond in deceit. So the plot is starting to develop. You notice the sons of Jacob have a little bit of Jacob in them. So they say, listen, your offer sounds good, but we have one stipulation. We, we can't just simply become Canaanites. We've got a lot of religious convictions, and so you've got to make, meet us halfway. You've got to become circumcised. You might say, this is their way to say, put some skin in the game. If you don't get it, think about it. Now, in all seriousness, here's the problem. Circumcision was a sign to mark out God's covenant people. It was a way for them to express their allegiance and devotion to God. It was a way to, to mark them out as the people of God, to make them a distinctive people. And what they've done here is they've taken that which is sacred and they've turned it into a weapon. See, they're pretending, they're feigning all this religious conviction, and they're weaponizing their religion for personal vengeance. It'd be like saying for us today, hey, we will become one with you, but you've got to be baptized first. And then they say, okay, and as they get into the water and go under, we hold them down there and drown them. That's essentially what they're going to do. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city. They spoke to the men of their city, saying, "'These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters.' Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of the city. So Hamor and Shechem come back. They go to the city gate. This is where City politics and business was done, and they tell the people of the city about their conversation with Jacob's sons. It's very likely that the people of the city were wondering about this clan. I mean, you've got to realize uh, this this is not some small clan. This is a guy who had a ton of livestock, he had uh, uh, people with him, and they're kind of wondering, hey, what are they doing here? And they come to the gate of the city. Hamor and Shechem, and they use their political sway, they use their power, they use their influence to convince the men of the city that circumcision is a small price to pay in order to, uh, to become one people with them for what they stand to gain. Do you notice how they tell the story? All the details are tilted in their favor. They're not forthright that this whole thing has come about because Shechem has raped. Uh, their daughter, uh, Jacob's daughter they make it sound like they were out trying to get the city's best interest fulfilled they make it sound like everyone stands to gain from this proposition that when all the dust settles they will gain livestock, property and wealth everyone agrees and every male was circumcised and thus the deceptive plan is set in motion now we come to verse 25 and we see nothing but destruction. On the third day when, the, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. So Simeon and Levi are Leah's sons. So this makes Dinah their full-blooded sister. And they're the ones who take justice into their own hands and they bring about destruction upon the city. This is where we find out, I told you earlier, that Dinah was held captive in Shechem. Simeon and Levi waited until the men were circumcised and sore, and they unleashed hell upon the city. Do you remember that, that righteous anger I told you about? Instead of taking that to the Lord, instead of asking the Lord for what to do, instead of going to the Lord in prayer to figure out what should happen next, they allowed their righteous anger to devolve into vengeance. And their response to injustice was to layer further injustice upon injustice. This is mass murder. This is absolute destruction. Their vengeance was completely disproportionate to the crime. Now think about it. Let's do some moral ethics here. Did Dinah Deserve justice? Yes, absolutely 100%. Should Shechem have been held accountable for his crime? Yes, absolutely 100%. Would it even have been appropriate to kill Shechem for his crime? Now, according to current cultural law, the answer is yes, it would have been entirely appropriate. He should have been tried. And found guilty and paid for his crimes according to the law of his day. But that is not what happened. This punishment did not fit the crime. Do you see? It's grossly disproportionate. To butcher an entire village, to take women and children as captives for the crime, is simply over the top. What happens here is not justice, but sin. Meaning more sin. It's vengeance and revenge. Justice is when a punishment fits the crime. But that's not what happens here. You have innocent people who are probably unaware of what's happened. Paying for the sins of another. Now verse 30. Jacob finally speaks. Listen to what he says. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi... You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And friends, that's where the chapter ends. When they come back, You could just see Simeon and Levi, they're probably covered in blood. They've got Dinah, and his response is completely self-centered. If you count, there's uh, there's eight personal pronouns there. It's all about me and I. There's no mention of Dinah and her return. No mention of the heinous nature of the retaliation. Jacob's response is 100% focused on Jacob. What will people think of me? How will this turn out for me? And look at Simeon and Levi. Is there any remorse for their actions? No. They believe the ends justified the means. And this passage just ends in darkness. It started dark. It just gets darker. And did you notice, we we have read every single verse in this chapter now. There's no mention of God's name. Not a single time. It's never mentioned in this chapter so why is it here what can we learn how do we apply a passage like this to our lives well, if you're taking notes i've got five implications for us to consider the first one is this the bible does not cover up the sins of its leaders implication number one the bible does not cover up the sins of its leaders think about jacob He is one of the patriarchs of Israel. We we even uh, talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name will be attached to Yahweh's name forever. He's one of the main leaders. In fact, we saw last week, his name has been changed to Israel. He's been named after the nation of Israel. His sons, these, these brothers, will be the 12 tribes of Israel. And do you notice what's happening in this passage? None of them look good. This is a passage without any heroes. There's no moral example in this passage to follow. Now, if you're just trying to make a story here, if you're just trying to write Genesis, you could take Genesis 34 out and nothing big is missed. There's no major child born here. There's nothing significant that happens, that we need for the storyline of redemption. And that sense in the narrative is completely unnecessary. And so if you were making this stuff up, if you were going to write, if you were going to make up the Bible, if you're going to go, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to make this thing that's one day going to be called the Bible, I'm going to fabricate a religion of moral good, I want to help teach people how to be good. I want to show them heroes of living. You would never put this passage in the Bible. In fact, I think this is one of those evidences for the historicity, the validity, and the trustworthiness of the Bible. Because when you're making this stuff up, you don't put this in there. You would edit it out to cover it up. Or... Let's just say we're not making this stuff up and we believe that the Bible is true. It also begs the question, why didn't they leave it out? There's a ton of things that happened in the storyline of the Bible that are never recorded. Why does this occur? Why is this in the Bible? And I think it's because the Bible is teaching us a pattern to be brutally honest about the failures and sins of its leaders. And the church should be no different today. We often hear of leaders and people within the church committing horrible crimes and it gets covered up see the point of grace is not to cover up sin by hiding but to bring it into the light so that it can be covered by the blood of Christ see all sin needs covering but no sin needs hiding And we don't cover things up by hiding it. We cover things up by exposing it to the light of truth. And it's there that the grace of God and the blood of Christ covers sin. See, it doesn't mean that leaders don't face consequences for their sins. That's not what grace means. Grace means we can be forgiven of our sins. But it also means we accept responsibility for the consequences. In fact, later on in Genesis... When Jacob is giving the blessing to his sons, Jacob is going to bring this back up. And he's going to tell Simeon and Levi that they are passed over to be the the line through which the Messiah comes because of their actions on this day. There's consequences for their actions because of what they did to the city of Shechem. It will be passed on to their younger brother Judah. Likewise, the church should not cover up sin and moral failure. People oftentimes will say, well, I was trying to protect the reputation of the church. The problem is is that it, it only harms the reputation of the church. When leaders fail, they should be held accountable. That goes for everybody. Elders, people of the church. Let me be clear. If a crime is committed... A person should be tried and held accountable. A pastor, a leader is not above the law, nor is anyone in this church irreplaceable. Nobody is irreplaceable. This is Jesus' church. The church's reputation is actually upheld when we're honest about the failures of our leadership and we seek accountable justice. Grace forgive sins, but grace never means that consequences are alleviated or excused. One of the reasons why this passage is in the Bible is to teach us by way of example that the sins of its leader should never be covered up. Number two, I think this passage is here is because we live in a broken and sinful world where people are abused. We just can't forget about that we can't pretend like these things don't happen because church look at me these things happen they're terrible they're awful and pretending like they don't happen does not solve the problem let's let Dinah's story remind us that abuse has been and and still continues to be a problem Listen, I know we live in a morally confused world that often confuses good and evil. And there's a lot of disagreement about what is right and wrong sexually. But I am thankful that I think you could read this passage to anybody. You could just go pick anybody on the street and they would go, yeah, that's wrong. What happened to her is wrong. Unequivocally, categorically wrong. It is always wrong for a person to take advantage of another person for their own personal Pleasure and the church must be eager and vocal to call this sin a sin, and the church should be eager and vocal to advocate for those who have been abused. Abuse cannot be a matter that is swept under the rug. Again, let me be clear the sin of rape and abuse can be forgiven by God, that is not an unforgivable sin, however. It should be met with the full weight of our legal justice system. Too many times, sins like this, sins of abuse, are covered up in homes. They're covered up in churches because we don't want to harm the witness of Christ. Or because we have relationship with somebody. And we think, man, they're basically a good guy. They they don't deserve to go to jail for this. The problem with that is covering up sin is what harms the witness of Christ. And covering up sin never brings a person to feel the full weight of their sin so that they can be forgiven. If you are experiencing abuse of any kind, hear me. I don't pretend Because this is a church, this isn't going on. If you're experiencing abuse of any kind, I want you to find, I want to encourage you to find a safe person to talk to. I know that is a very big ask. I know that takes a ton of courage. I know wrapped up in that is fear, there's shame, there's guilt. There's a ton of questions about what will happen next. I get all of that. But let me encourage you to talk to someone. That could be a pastor, that could be someone who just looks safe and friendly. That could be a friend, a coworker. There's hotlines where you can be completely anonymous, but there is someone you can talk to. You need to tell your story not just so that the wheels of justice can start turning but so that you can begin the process of healing I just want you to know as a church we do not deal with these matters in house when we find out about abuse we tell the proper authorities not a year from now not 20 years from now right away we make the phone call right away we are not experts we are not the law we bring in people who help navigate these difficult situations we will bring in appropriate advocates for victims of abuse and we will help authorities So that they can lend their expertise and their calling to seek appropriate justice. And for anyone who's been abused, maybe that's part of your story. Maybe that's part of your past. And you're going, listen, I've never dealt with it before. I've just been pushing it down year after year. If that's you, please talk to us. We want to connect you with skilled counselors and therapists and professionals who are just skilled at walking through these difficult problems of the heart. I know it is statistically impossible, even in a church of our humble size, that, there's, uh, that we've escaped the pain and trauma of abuse. It's impossible. Sitting in this room right now are people who have been abused in some form or fashion. And therefore, as a people, we need to be sympathetic to those going through these kinds of abuses. We need to be sympathetic that we could be talking to someone in our gospel communities or in our DNA groups or just over a cup of coffee where this is a part of their story. And we should be uh, quick to realize that these kinds of sins cause deep wounds that can take years, sometimes a lifetime to heal. So, we should add patience to our sympathy. And this is why, as a church, you hear us from time to time talk about one of our core values of gospel, safety, and time. Time is so critical. I mean, the gospel is so critical because we need to know that there is good news, that Jesus really does bring transformation. If that's part of your story, listen to me Jesus brings healing. We also need a a safe place to know that we can let our guard down without being further harmed. And we need time to know that change doesn't happen overnight. And that's why as a church we will give you gospel, safety, and time to walk through these things. If you're an abuse survivor and you'd like to talk to someone about getting counseling and help, please know we have formed really great relationships with some strategic partners who are incredible counselors who will help you to continue down the path of healing. If immediately you think I can't afford that, if your financial situation makes that sound unattainable, please know that money will not deter you from that. We will figure it out. Finances should never be a barrier to healing. That's number two. We live in a broken and sinful world where people are abused. Number three, third implication. Injustice never warrants further injustice. There's no question that Shechem's crime was grievous and demanded justice. That said, the response to that injustice was so incredibly disproportionate. They killed people who were innocent of the crime. They weaponized their religion for their own justice. And even if you have the right to be angry, even if you have the right to pursue justice, it doesn't give you the right to take justice into your own hands. See, we have to realize there is a difference between what's been done to you and your response to what's been done to you. In the the heightened sense of emotion, we can blur that distinction. But friends, there's a difference between what's happened to you and then your response to what's happened to you. Pursuing justice is responding to what's been done to you, and just because something wrong has been done to you, it does not warrant or give you the right to further injustice. In fact, we are actually held responsible for how we respond to injustice. Our status as a victim does not give us a blank card to go and do whatever we want. The biblical path is to trust the Lord for justice. This comes both from the provision of cultural justice, the fact that we live in a world where there are systems of justice to pursue, and in the fact that in the end, God will ensure that justice is accomplished. So in other words, we seek justice through our legal system, even in its brokenness. I'm not idealistic. I'm not saying that our legal system is perfect. But there are mechanisms for justice that we can pursue. And where it falls short, we can trust that in the end, God will be a righteous judge. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice, he didn't say don't pursue justice. He said don't pursue vengeance. Now we're going to actually unpack this text Uh, Later in the fall, in a short sermon series on Romans chapter 12. So I'm not going to spend much time on it. And we did a whole series on justice earlier this year. And so if that has spurred you to want to know more about how we seek justice, you can go listen to those sermons. But here's the point. God is just. And the trajectory of human history bends towards justice. Not simply because Dr. King said it did. But because God promised it, it does. That's why Dr. King said it does. Because he's looking at the Bible and the God of justice and saying, listen, I know even when justice falls short here, God is a God of justice. And that's ultimately what enables us to put matters of injustice to rest. Because God himself is just. Number four, fourth implication. I think this passage is here because it teaches us the importance of a father's presence, protection, and provision. There is a glaring failure threaded throughout this entire narrative, and it's Jacob's role as a father. Where's Jacob when his daughter's leaving to go to Shechem alone? Did he warn her of the dangers? Did he even know she was gone? And while that might be a bit speculative, it's certainly clear that throughout this entire passage, he remains passive and silent, where he should have been active and vocal. And the only time he speaks is when he's worried about his own neck. He should have looked Hamor in the face and said, we're going to Shechem right now to get my daughter back. And then your son will stand trial for what he's done. That's what he should have said. That's what he should have done. He should have told his sons to stand down. He should have said, this is not your fight. This is my daughter. You stand with me. Don't go ahead of me. He should have told him you should never use your religion as a weapon. He should have been present throughout this situation, and yet he's completely passive. He should have protected his children from their own foolish decisions, and he should have provided a pathway for justice. But at every single point along the way, he failed. And his absence as a father has long-term and far-reaching effects, both for his sons and for his daughters. So I want to spend a moment just to talk to the men in the room, the fathers in the room and men who aspire to the role of father. Look at me. Your family needs you. They need you. Your family needs your intentional presence. Your family needs your steadfast protection. And your family needs your generous provision. We cannot abdicate our role as a father. You can't farm that out to some third party. God has given men a charge to lead sacrificially in the home. Now that doesn't mean women don't have a role of leadership in the family. That's not the point of this part of the sermon. Don't mishear me. But what I do want us to look at here is to see, Jake, to see Jacob's failure and to do a bit of an autopsy and going, what would have happened had Jacob been present? What would have happened if Jacob had been a protector and a provider? I want us to look at this passage and see that the tragedy follows a failure of godly leadership in the home. And to ask what would have happened had he been the man God had called him to be. Thinking about that doesn't answer every single question of how we uh, grow into that role and how we become godly fathers. But it does create some categories to think about presence and protection and provision And to spend the coming weeks thinking about our role as fathers. One practical step if you're going, I want to grow in that this year, sign up for the Lithos track. We spend 10 months talking about it, thinking about it, praying over it, looking at the biblical passages and asking, God, what is a man? What are the roles that you've given to men and how can we live out those roles? If you want to grow in that this year, let's spend some time and invest in it together. And number five, the final one, even in the dark, there's hope. Even in a passage that ends darkly like this one does, there's hope. There's hope. And the people of God should always be looking to the horizon for the dawn. The dawn always comes, not because we are an intrinsically or optimistically idealistic people, but because we believe in the God of light. That's why even on the darkest of nights we should be eagerly looking to the horizon for the sun. Because after Genesis 34 comes Genesis 35 and God comes to Jacob and says, go to Bethel and there I will continue to work with you and to continue to work through you. And just when you think God should look at this group of people and go, I can't use you. There's no way that you guys can be my redemptive family. I'm going to just start over, I'll go find another person. He speaks into the darkness, into that light with his word and says, come, go to Bethel and let's regroup and figure this out. And there's a pattern established earlier in Genesis and even in here that continues throughout the Bible that, the, that, 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 that even in the dark before the dawn, there's this pattern of, of coming light. And we see it climax at the cross. In Luke 23, verses 44 to 46, we hear, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Do you see that? The final hours of Jesus' life were spent in the dark before the dawn. Why? The Bible says the sun's light had failed. And though it was the darkest day and though it seemed hopeless, the dawn of Resurrection Sunday was coming. See, friends, I know some of you are experiencing dark days. But the people of God must become patterned to be looking at the horizon before the dawn. The people of God must cling to the hope of coming light. See, God doesn't choose us because we're strong and wise and capable. Clearly, He didn't choose Jacob and his family because of that. But He chooses us precisely because we're weak and foolish and incapable. And it's on that dark canvas that God is able to flex and show that He is strong, that He is wise. And he is capable. And it's through that darkness that his glory shines bright. Let's pray.